Well, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Amen. Please turn in your New Testament this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 13. Gospel of John, chapter 13. It was a normal, boring staff meeting on a normal, boring Monday morning at First Baptist Church, Winter Park, Florida. My staff were all gathered in obedience, <laughs> not because they really wanted to be there, but because we needed to do problem solving and calendar planning. And every staff member had many, many other things to do. But we dutifully and diligently pressed on. Each of us waiting for that time to come when we finished so we could leave and get on to more important, more eternal things. That is until there came a knock at my study door. That was highly unusual because the folks at First Baptist Winter Park knew when we had staff meeting and they seldom interrupted. I went to the door and there stood Barbara. Barbara was a godly woman. She kind of directed the missions activities of our church, like this church, First Winter Park, had a strong missions DNA. She planned our missions conference every year, loved and respected. But she had a white basin of water in her hand. And she had a towel. And she asked me a question in front of my whole staff that I'd never been asked before. Brother Tommy, may I wash your feet? Now, what do you say? <laughs> I said, well, Barbara, she said, well, Brother Tommy, I've had this on my heart for a long time, and I just feel like this is something the Lord wants me to do. I said, Barbara, come on in. I sat down in a chair. She took off my shoes and my socks. I was so glad I wore holeless socks that, that day. <laughs> And I'd wash my feet, you know. And uh, she began to wash her pastor's feet. And I can't begin to tell you what happened in my heart. Because I, to this day, cannot understand it. It was like the floodgates broke loose. And I wept with an intensity that I hadn't wept since my father died in 1980. And after she had finished, I felt so compelled to wash our staff's feet. And so we, we had a little worship service. <laughs> and I went around to each of our staff members. And a boring, dull staff meeting 
turned into a revival meeting. God met with us in a powerful way. Something like that happened in John 13. With your Bible open there, we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses or so of this chapter. This is the third sermon in a three-sermon series entitled, The Seven Words of the Gospel. By way of review, you'll remember that the first two words are found in Psalm 51, verses 2 and 7, where David, in remembering his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and how he orchestrated the murder of her husband and his friend and faithful soldier Uriah, He's crying out to God in verse 2 and verse 7, and he says, wash me. It's a prayer to God for God to do something for David that he couldn't do for himself. And even though he had the finest of soaps, he could not cleanse the inside of his heart. So he cries out to the Lord, wash me, the first two words. The second two words are found in the prophet Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, where we saw last week that Rather than a prayer to God, we hear God speaking to his people in Judah. And he's giving them a command. And the command goes like this, wash yourselves. Those are the second two words in the seven words of the gospel. And he's challenging them to pursue holiness and to be proactive in it. Not to be passive and asking God to do for them what they know they ought to do for themselves with God's help. And so we talked about sanctification last week. Today we come to John 13 and the final three words of the seven words of the gospel. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, You call me Master and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to, here it is, church, wash one another. Would you say those three words with me? Wash one another. That's the last three words of the seven words of the gospel. Washing one another. Wash me refers to salvation. Letting God do for us, saving us, cleansing us, forgiving us from the inside out. Wash yourselves is sanctification. It's that pursuit of holiness which we pursue in obedience to what God wants us to do. But wash one another relates to service. It relates to how our faith animates us and motivates us to reach out to other people in loving acts of kindness and in service. And so we want to explore that and unpackage that from John chapter 13 today. I'm going to do that by talking about three things. I want to talk about a remarkable love. I want to talk about a deed that's related to that remarkable love. And then I want to close out by just referring to what I'm calling a reasonable obligation. If God loves us that much, then what should we do in response to that love? So let's begin today just by talking about what I'm calling a remarkable love. You'll notice in, in, verses, in verse 1 of John chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, now this is an important thing, he knew that his hour 
had come. Now, Jesus would often say in the Gospel of John, my hour is not yet. We see that in John 2 at the miracle of, the, of his first miracle of uh, turning the water to wine. We see it in John chapter 8 where he says, my hour is not yet come. And throughout John, he pays close attention to the calendar of the cross where Jesus is leading up to the cross. But now he says that uh, he knew that his hour had come. It's important that you understand what's going through the mind of Jesus. He knows without a shadow of a doubt that within a matter of 14 to 18 hours, he's going to be killed in an excruciating manner on the cross. Now, all of that is a part of his consciousness at the moment. Uh, he, and he also remembers this, that he had come to depart out of this world to the Father Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's important. He loved them. You see that word love. The word love in the Gospel of John is found only nine times in the first 12 chapters. Some prominent times are like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But there's only less than a dozen times in the dozen chapters leading up to John chapter 13. But the amazing thing is, starting at John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, which is technically called the upper room discourse. Others call it, uh, uh, you know, the, the high point in the life of Jesus. Many theologians look at this as uh, entering into the holy of holies in the life of Jesus. From chapter 13 to chapter 17, the word love is found, seven, uh, is found 30 times. So it's obvious that there's kind of a change of emphasis. And Jesus is beginning to demonstrate and to exemplify uh, this deep, deep love that he has for his own disciples. And so what we see here is a remarkable, remarkable love. And it's love under pressure, if you're filling in your blanks. It's love under pressure because of the timing of this particular event in John chapter 13. The timing of it comes at a time when he's under extreme pressure. He knows that he's going to die. And not only does he know he's going to die, he knows how he's going to die. Isaiah 53 had described it. He'll be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. Jesus, from Psalm 22, knew the method of his execution. For Psalm 22 describes it prophetically in graphic terms. And so Jesus is feeling all of that. And so within 14 to 18 hours, he's going to die. Let me ask you, if you knew that you were going to die in the next 12 hours, would, would, it, would you easily excuse any hard words or impatience that you might have toward other people? I mean, I can imagine with all of this going through his mind that Jesus could have been so self-absorbed with his own problems and with his own imminent suffering and pain that he wouldn't think of anybody else. But the amazing thing is his thoughts turn to his disciples and he takes off that outer garment and, and he takes up a basin and he begins to wash their feet. I say it's a remarkable love because it is love under pressure. Uh, for our 30th anniversary, Rose and I took a trip 
to London, England, and we're grateful for that privilege to, that we could do that. And I visited uh, the church of my spiritual hero, Charles Spurgeon. I visited his grave. And, but one of the things that we, we did is we visited Oxford, England. And there is a place in the middle of the street in Oxford, England, that's dedicated to the, to the martyrdom of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Latimer and Ridley were bishops in the Church of England. They were evangelical bishops who, who, who taught uh, the Word of God and who sought to evangelize and win people to Christ. But when Edward was, died and Bloody Mary, if you remember your history, came back to the throne, her goal was to return England to Roman Catholicism. And the first thing that Bloody Mary did was arrested Latimer and Ridley, and eventually they were executed by burning them at the stake. And the night before Bishop Ridley was burned at the stake, he held a party <laughs> in his cell, and he invited his friends to come. And when they got there, Ridley showed up in his finest affair, in his finest clothing. And uh, then Ridley said to them, and I'm quoting him now, he said to his friends gathered in that cell, quote, tomorrow I must be married. He was thinking that tomorrow he would enter in fully into that union, that ultimate victory over sin and Satan, and he would be entering into glory and in the presence of his Savior. You see, Ridley there is emulating the spirit of his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who under pressure could have been bitter and angry and, and cursing Bloody Mary for the fact that she had misrepresented him and was going to execute him in the morning. But his whole heart was captured by the fact that he was entering into glory and his heart was filled with a remarkable love. It was love under pressure. Secondly, it was a remarkable love because it was love of great intensity. Do you notice what he said? He loved them unto the end. Do you see that in verse 1? He loved them unto the end. Now that phrase, unto the end, has been variously debated about exactly what does it mean. Well, it could mean two or three things, but I, I think the dominant uh, consensus is that it means to the uttermost. He loved them to the uttermost. That means that he showed them how utterly he loved them. One of the greatest Greek scholars in Southern Baptist history is A.T. Robertson. And Robertson said that it meant that God could never love them more. Isn't that amazing? God could never love them more. Friend, think about that. Meditate on that. That your God loves you. He couldn't love you any more than he loves you. And he loved these guys. And the amazing thing is, he loved them with great intensity, even though he had in the bunch, he had a doubter in Thomas. He had a, 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 a denier in Peter. And he had a man who was going to turn him into the authorities and betray him in Judas. And even though he knew all of that, he never stopped loving them. He never allowed their sin to dictate his level of loving. Friend, Jesus loves us and his love is not contingent upon our actions. He loves us unconditionally and I'm so, so thankful for that. And then secondly, this phrase to the end can mean that he loved them up until the very last minute of his life. 
He loved them at the last with an intensity greater than any expression of love up until that point. Can I say, uh, lastly, that it was a remarkable love because of the purpose of this act. Why did Jesus do this? Well, always the teacher. Always the teacher. He said in verse 13, you call me master and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. And Jesus continued to teach right up until the end. And his kneeling at their feet and his washing their feet was a lesson for them. He was teaching them. He was preparing them for the new normal they were going to have in their life when he was gone. And they had to live without his physical presence Remember Jesus prayed in just a few chapters over. He said, I pray that they won't be taken out of the world. He said, I don't want you to leave the world, but I want you to, to stay in this world. And Jesus is going to prepare them to be witnesses for him. And what Jesus is doing, listen to this church. He is demonstrating to them the spirit that would, should animate the church in the years to come. He's saying that the church should function out of love and service. The church was never to grow through militancy. The church was never to grow by flaunting her authority. The church was never to grow by, by, by a, a, a vicar telling what we were to do and not to do. The church is to grow. The church is to minister out of love and out of service. That's what Longview Point, that's what the point is to be, is to be a point of service and love. A, serve, a place where Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet reach out into this community. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no tongue but our tongue to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to lead men to his side. We are the only Bible the careless world will read. We're the gospel sinner's gospel. We're the scoffer's creed. We're the Lord's last message given in deed and word. But what if the type is crooked and what if the print is blurred? You see, we are the Bible. We are God's Bible. And so it was a remarkable love because of its purpose. Now, secondly, notice secondly, out of this remarkable love, we see what I'm calling a related deed. In other words, because of this love, there is a related deed in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I entitled this sermon, The Towel That Changed the World. And it really did. The towel. It says he took off his garments. He rose from the supper. Notice it says that he, in verse 4, laid aside, laid aside his outer garment. That, that's, that's the same Greek phrase when Jesus laid down his life. It's a picture here. And so it's a, it's a related deed. Number one, it's a deed of amazing condescension. A deed of amazing condescension. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just consider the nature of the act itself. What's he doing? He's washing feet. This is a task normally done by servants. This was considered even by servants the most menial and debasing act that they could perform. But on this particular occasion, whether it's because of the secrecy of the meeting or because 
of whatever reason, there's not a servant there to wash their feet. And so the Lord Jesus lays aside his garment and he begins to wash their smelly, dirty, dung-splattered feet. Now, the disciples would have gladly washed the feet of Jesus. <laughs> but it's another story about washing each other's feet. See what I'm saying? You see, they would have gladly washed his feet. But don't ask them to wash each other's feet. You know why? Because they're arguing all the way over there as they talk and walk along the way going to the upper room. You know what they're talking about? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? And so they march into that upper room like a group of petulant preschool children. I'm greater than you are. I'm greater than you are. I'm greater than you are. And Peter and John said, well, my mama said we're going to be greatest. <laughs> Jesus' response to that, he takes a towel, wraps it around him, begins to wash the disciples' feet. It's an act of amazing condescension because of the nature of the act itself. Number two, because of the dignity of the one performing the act. Look who's doing it. Hey, if you wash my feet, or I washed your feet, that's cause for humility. When Barbara came in and washed my feet, that humbled me to no end. But what if an entourage drove up out here of black limousines? Now, I don't care what you think about Donald Trump. I'm using this for an illustration, all right? And Donald Trump walks out of a gets out of the limousine, walks down his aisle, and says, Brother Tommy, I want to wash your feet. Wow. Now, he might use boiling water. I don't know. <laughs> but wouldn't that be condescension? But my dear friend, that doesn't touch the hem of the garment concerning the dignity of the one who washed these disciples' feet. I mean, the one that's kneeling in front of them, he's the one that created the world they live in. The one kneeling in front of them, he's the one that created the oxygen they breathe. He named the stars they see at night. And he's about to die as a substitute for their sin. See his dignity. Dr. Dobson tells the story of a, a prominent surgeon in New York whose office was next to the library. And the, the surgeon was known to slip out of his office and go over to the library and spend some time just pulling away, getting some R&R. &R. And over the years, he met a lot of homeless people in the library because they too would come to the library to get out of the cold or to read the paper. And one man got real close to the surgeon. They became good friends. And one day the surgeon noticed that he was limping. And he asked him, what's wrong? He said, well, I can't walk very well. My toenails are so long. and They're gnarled and they're grown in. The surgeon said, wait right here. Went up to his office, got some tools, came back into that library, the two of them went into the men's room. 
And that prominent surgeon in New York took off that old homeless man's shoes and socks. And with that surgical tools, he began to cut the toenails, gnarled, hard, ingrown toenails of that homeless man. What a picture. Dignity. Intellectual, brilliant surgeon cutting the toenails of a homeless man. That doesn't begin to express the distance of the dignity of the Son of God who is washing the feet of these deniers, these these doubters. These are turning him over to die. I say it's a related deed because of the dignity of the one performing it and the character on whom he is performing it. But it's not only a deed of amazing condescension. It is a deed of significant symbolism. Why? Well, it was a symbol, first of all, of the abasement of Christ. It says he laid aside his garment. What a picture. That's what Jesus did when he came into this world, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, he's in eternity with the Father. Philippians 2, I guess, is the passage that best describes this. It's almost like we see in Philippians 2, Jesus taking a ladder out of heaven with the Father down to earth. And listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and, and verses 7 through 10, if you want to mark it in your outline. Listen to it. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. He said, talking about Jesus, he said, but he emptied himself. Now that doesn't mean he ceased being God. Understand that. Jesus never ceased being God. When he emptied himself, it means he emptied himself of those expressions of his deity that, that limited him from being a man. But he never ceased to be God. He was God and he was man. You say, explain that to me, Brother Tommy. I can't. I can't. But I accept it. Because he was fully God as if he were not man. And he was fully man as if he were not God. He was, God, he was the God-man. And it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Stepped out of heaven, came to earth. That's the first step down. He became a man, that's the first step. He became a servant man, that's the second step. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. That's the third step. Even death on the cross, that's the fourth step. Came all the way down. Laid aside and came down. He came down. That, that's a picture of, of what we see here in, in John chapter 13. We, we, we see him abasing himself. Coming down. And then Paul says, therefore because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
Wow. Jesus becoming a man, abasing himself, becoming human flesh. Can you imagine what that was like? Remember Uzzah in the Old Testament? He just touched the ark and he died. Wow. The glory of God. If Jesus hadn't laid aside that glory, we couldn't have even touched him. Now, why did Jesus do that? Three practical reasons. Number one, to cleanse their feet. <laughs> Isn't that profound? You know, I'm trying to be real deep today. He washed their feet because they were dirty. They were caked in dust and mud and dung. Somebody needed to wash their feet. And they weren't willing to do it. So Jesus did it as a practical act of Christian love. You know, you hear me preach and you hear the praise team sing and the choir. Some of you say, boy, I wish I could do that. Some of you say, glad I'm not doing that. But I will tell you something, precious friend. Those of you whose gifts may, may not be the demonstrative gifts, you may have the gift of helps. You may bake a cake or bake a pie. You may have the gift of mercy where you go to the nursing home and spend a couple of hours with, a, with someone who never gets a visit. You, you, you may be someone who has a gift of counseling and, and you sit down with a couple that's going through a marriage difficulty and you invest hours. Nobody knows that but that couple. Nobody knows that cake you, you baked or that pie. Nobody knows the time you babysat for that young couple so they could have a night out. The, see, that's just practical stuff. But Jesus takes note of it. Oh, if you wash feet and do those things, it's not going to be written up in the Baptist record. You're not going to have your name in Christianity today. But Jesus knows it. He knows it. And number two, not only to cleanse their feet, but to convict them of their spirit of competition. Luke 24, 24 says, a dispute among them as to who was the greatest. <laughs> Oh, they must have been Baptists. They're on their way to take the Lord's Supper arguing about who's the greatest. Peter and John said, well, Mama said we were. I'm greatest. You're greatest. Jesus began to wash. You know what he's doing? He is convicting them of this spirit of competition while they come stomping into the room they sounded more like Hulk Hogan and Jerry Lawler and Muhammad Ali than they did God's people I think God hates the proud you don't believe that? read Proverbs when it talks about the things God hates right at the front of the list pride pride well, the third thing he did was he did it to correct them from their wrong concepts of service. You see, they were more concerned about being served than serving. Jesus is teaching them that the true nature of ministry and one of the highest expressions of genuine Christian living is serving others. That leads me to my last point, and you've been so patient. I'm going to take just another few minutes, and I'll be through. We, we come now, in light of all of that, we see a reasonable obligation. And here it is. Jesus said in verse 14, 
If I, your master and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. Now, let me just say that I do not believe that foot washing is another third ordinance of the church. Some of our Baptist brethren do. Our free will Baptists, for example, they have a foot washing ceremony often in their worship. Like we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, they add foot washing. The reason I, I don't see it as another ordinance is because in 35 years of church history in the book of Acts, it's never mentioned. It's never mentioned in the epistles of Peter or Paul. And I do believe that in 35 years of church history, in the writings of Peter and Paul, as much as he talks about the Lord's Supper and baptism, he would have at least mentioned foot washing as an ordinance. But that doesn't mean it's unimportant, and it doesn't mean that it's not a wonderful expression of Christian service. Now, I think there's two things that are, that are uh, obligated here in this reasonable obligation. Number one, I think it's an obligation to humility in service. Humility in service. Uh, you know, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's not thinking of ourselves at all. And a lot of, uh, Dr. Rogers used to say this, I love it. He said, what passes for humility in a lot of churches is nothing more than bad posture. Oh me. I'm just nothing, I'm nobody. I think I'll go home and eat me some worms. That's not humility. That is full of self. That's self-pity. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was oh so small, only three folks were there. I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the cookies while I drank all the tea. It was also I that passed the pie and passed the cake to me. Oh, I'm so humble. No. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself. It's thinking of others. I think that's what was on Peter's mind when he said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Heard about the preacher that was given a medal for humility, and then they took it away from him because he wore it all the time. <laughs> the second and last thing, and I'm closing with this. It was an obligation not only to, to humility and service, but it was an obligation to brotherly forgiveness. When Jesus is washing their feet, he's picturing forgiveness. Peter didn't want him to wash his feet. Remember, he recalled, Lord, you'll not wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. It's a sign that you're not in relationship with me. Because wanting to have your feet washed is a part of what it means to be a Christian. Because he said, you don't need a bath. You don't need to be saved all over again. But your feet gets dirty as you walk through the sinful world. And you have to confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So for washing feet is a picture of forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. A million years ago and a million miles from here, I pastored a church. And the first week I was on the field, I ran into a lady who I could tell immediately did not want me to be there. And that's a bad feeling. She let me know she didn't care a thing about me and wasn't interested in ever getting to know me. Would walk down the hall, she'd go the other side of the hallway. She 
would hardly make eye contact. She made some harsh comments. And I'd go home at lunch and say, honey, I don't say to my wife, honey, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I hadn't been here long enough to offend her. Give me some time. I'll get to that later. <laughs> I hadn't offended her. Come to find out, her husband had left her for another man. And she had determined in her heart she'd never love another preacher. Long story short, she came down with cancer. I didn't, she, the, the day of surgery, I was in a dilemma because I, as a pastor, I wanted to go. But I didn't think she wanted me there. But I told Rose, I said, well, I'm the only pastor she's got. So I'm going anyway. If she runs me out of the room, she'll just run me out of the room. And I remember when I got to the hospital, the door was open and I, I walked to the door. And when I stepped in the room, she looked up at me. And her daughter from out of town was standing by. And she reached and she got her daughter's hand. And she said, this is Brother Tommy. She said, I have been so ugly and so mean to that man. And then she looked at me and she said, Brother Tommy, would you forgive me? And there that morning, before they came and got her and took her to surgery, I had the privilege of washing her feet. How did I do that? I said to her, it is my joy to forgive you. You see, forgiving, forgiving is what Jesus is teaching here. Being forgiven and forgiving others. Maybe there's somebody in your life that has tired feet. And they need you to wash those tired feet. They're about to give up. They're about to throw in the towel. Maybe somebody in the traffic pattern of your life has wounded feet. A pastor, a deacon, a Christian, somewhere along the way has disappointed them. And you, you can come along beside of them and help heal their wounded feet. Maybe there's calloused feet. They used to love the Lord, but they've gotten cold, indifferent, hard-hearted. God may use you to wash that calloused feet. And maybe they're dirty feet. They're living in rebellion against God. But they need to know somebody at the point loves them and they're not forgotten. And you need to go to them, not to preach to them. Jesus could have exposed Peter. He could have exposed Judas. And he didn't do it. He just loved them. Maybe you need to go to somebody with dirty feet. Maybe you're here today and your feet's dirty. And you need to just let Jesus wash your spiritual feet.